Our text of emphasis for today is going to be found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 9 and 10. And it reads, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. And now, please uh, bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for this really beautiful Sabbath, Lord. We thank you that we get to come together and open your word and just study and see who you are, Lord, and how good you are, how wonderful, how awesome, and what that means for each and every one of us today. Continue to be with us, and I pray that your spirit will be with us uh, as we learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we are continuing our series, which is entitled, Is It Good News? Is It Good News? So in this series, we're basically going through um, some topics. We're going through some core fundamental beliefs that we have as a church and trying to figure out, well, we know a lot of maybe theoretically why we believe these things, but what's some of the practical, everyday good news? What's the good news of this message for my life today? Now, we've talked about several things. We've talked about justification and sanctification talked about free will. Last week we talked about the sanctuary. So today the topic that I was kind of given to talk about was a pretty familiar one. It's basically just about human beings, about you, about me, about us as a, as a people, about us as a creations of God. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, okay, this is a pretty good topic because I think that it's interesting in that as human beings, we all have feel like we know ourselves so well and we have some things about ourselves that simultaneously we don't understand it all. Like for me, a good example of that would be something I don't really get about myself at all is that it's pretty common is that I'm really bad with names. So I do re I'm not good at remembering people's names at all. It's bad for someone who's working with a bunch of people. So it's not a good habit to develop. But it can be pretty frustrating, you know, when you meet a stranger, you meet someone new for the first time, and it can kind of seem kind of rude that you don't remember their name. It's, it's kind of an inconvenience to you. But as inconvenient as it might not be for me to remember strangers' names, it's actually even worse for me in that this problem has roots that are so deep that they've spilled over to my interactions with the rest of my family that I see all the time. And so a great example of this is that I have two uncles. One of them is named Uncle Tony. One of them is named Uncle Will. And I always, well, that's not their names, but that's what I call them. And I always get their names confused, continuously. I'm always, I'm going to Uncle Tony, and I'm calling him Uncle Will, and I'm going to Uncle Will, and I'm calling him Uncle Tony. And I think it's because they're the only two uh, taller people in our family, and so that's why I get them, get their names mixed up. But it's embarrassing, because I see them all the time, and I'm always, it became a running gag in the family that everyone always knew that I would get their names wrong. And so much so, the problem got so bad that I have one very specific memory that was kind of just the low point for me which was, we were, it was at Christmas time, and I was talking to Uncle Tony, and I was about to refer to him by his correct name. But then I stopped myself, I was like, no, Jeremiah, you always get the name wrong. So I switched it in my head. So instead of calling him the right name like I was going to, I called him the wrong name, everyone overreacted, and then I sat there and looked at myself introspectively and said, why are you the way that you are? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And that's the question we want to answer today. Why are we as a people the way that we are? Why are we the way that we are? Why do we exist the way that we exist? Why do we have these seemingly things that we get so much and these things that we don't understand about ourselves? But in order to really answer this question, we want to go all the way back to the beginning of humanity. So turn with me back to uh, Genesis chapter 1 as we attempt to at least discover why as people we are the way that we are. Genesis chapter 1 and we'll start in verse 26. And basically, we are at this point in the chapter five and a half days into creation in which God has already created the sun and the moon and the stars and he's created vegetation and he split the land from the sea and he's created fish and birds. And halfway through the sixth day, he's already created animals. And now we pick up right here in verse 26 where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing, or every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And if we skip down to verse 31, it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So here we see the beginning of mankind, the beginning of all of us. God creating this creation and saying that it was not just good, but very good. And in fact, if we look in chapter 2 and verse 7, we get an even more kind of intimate description of how God created mankind, in which it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here we have people, here we have humanity, this very unique creation, this in fact handmade creation molded by God himself of the dust of the earth, and the breath of life, dust of the earth and the breath of life coming together and becoming a living, breathing human soul, a living, breathing human soul. And that's how we came to be. That's how humanity got started. Now, what was God's original, what's God's vision for humanity? When God created us, what was kind of this purpose? What was our purpose? What was our function? For what reason were we put on this earth? Now, if we look back to chapter one, we see this pretty, pretty cool thing that God, that it says that we were created in the image of God. Humanity was created in the image of God. And you start to think to yourself, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, we know that God isn't really restricted to a single being or a single form. He's, he's inexpansive. He's omnipresent. He's really everywhere. So we might not look physically like God, but how are we still in the image of God? Well, as we study and we learn more about God, we realize that maybe just as much, at least just as important as his power and his omnipresence and his kind of everythingness that he is, is his character. The character of God is something that is important, it's essential, it's a key, irremovable part of who God is. And while we might not be able to reflect the image of God physically, we can always reflect his character. And that's what humanity was kind of designed to be. That's what we were kind of put on this earth to do. Uh, someone agrees with me back there, so that's, that's good. Um, but yeah, so as we look, what does that look like, the image of God? Now, if we look in the text, well, one of the things we know about God is God is an authority figure. He's this 
you know, caretaker. He's this person in charge of everything else. And if we look at the text, we see that Adam and Eve, our fathers and our, our father and mother, were also given dominion over the rest of the earth. They were kind of the authority figure, you know, over the rest of the creation. They were supposed to care for it. They're supposed to watch over it in the same way that God is, has authority over all his creation and cares for it and nurtures it and kind of takes it under his wing. In that same way, we as human beings were supposed to do that for the rest of creation. Not only that, it says in, in verse 28, God gives Adam and Eve the specific commandment to be fruitful and multiply, to go out and spread, to create the sense of community. Now we know that God is really a God of community and that even he himself is a kind of community. He's the Father, he's the Son, he's the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that God is like a community, we as people were supposed to foster this community throughout the entire earth, this community that lived in harmony with God, in harmony with each other, and also in harmony with God's creation. Now, we see we, humans were, you know, uh, uh, a caretakers, we were supposed to be a community, and even more than anything else, because if you were to sum up God's character in one word, and you had to pick one word, we would probably all choose love. So it would be essential for us as human beings, if we really were truly supposed to be what we were intended to be, which was a reflection of the character of God, of God's image, we would have to also show love. This is a theme we see all throughout the Bible. If you can, you can turn with me to John chapter 13 and verse 35, as we look at this idea of showing love as a reflection of who God is. John chapter 13 and verse 35. And in this passage, we have Jesus kind of talking to his disciples. He's speaking to them. He's addressing them. And right here in verse 35, he makes this statement. He says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here, again, this theme is found all throughout the Bible. If we are really to be an accurate reflection, if we are really to be a reflection of the true character of God, we have to show love to one another. So here we have humanity as we were created, as we were intended to be. And it seems like a pretty cool, pretty, a very honorable position to have. We're in charge of the earth. We're supposed to show love to everyone. We're, we have this very high honor of reflecting the character of God, this great, you know, Thing that gets to be placed on us. But unfortunately, as we read the story, as we continue reading, if in fact, in fact, if you go just to the very next chapter, chapter three, you find out that humanity actually completely failed at this job and that we did not completely or perfectly represent God's character. In fact, we distanced ourselves from God. We broke his law, his law of love. We, we separated ourselves from him. We chose to love ourselves more than we love God. And because of that decision and because of the, the implications of what Adam and Eve did all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the rest of humanity has been changed as a result. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Paul kind of talks about this, in which he talks about the effect of what Adam and Eve did and uh, the effect it had on the rest of mankind. Now in Romans chapter 5, we'll start in verse 12, or actually we'll just read verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. So now instead of being these perfect, this perfect reflection of God's image, this perfect reflection of who God is and his character, now all of a sudden humanity is completely or at least fully corrupted in some way by sin and by death. 
And all of us are born to eventually die. And all of us are born with this sinful desire, these sinful inclinations, this love of self above everything else. David describes this same kind of feeling of being born into this life of sin in Psalms chapter 51, where he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This idea of right from the very beginning, right from the moment we're born, being trapped in this life of sin, trapped in this cycle of sin and death, and just not being what God had originally planned us to be, no longer living up to that standard that we were originally placed for. We know that God made us to be a perfect reflection of Him, but now none of us, and many times we're not even a good reflection of Him, let alone a perfect reflection. We seem to have this inward desire to sin that's so strong, that's so powerful, that it just overpowers everything else. It overpowers our judgment, it overpowers our conscience, it overpowers our, our good decision making. In fact, this feeling of being trapped in this cycle of sin is described by Paul, the same guy who wrote this book, just two chapters over. He actually does a really good job of encapsulating this feeling of what it feels like to be trapped, hopelessly trapped in this life of sin. Now, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 7, and we'll read verses 21 through 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. Now, in the context leading up to this passage, we see that Paul basically describes the situation that I think all of us could relate to, where he says, I have these good things that I want to do, but I just can't do them, no matter how much I want to do them. And I have these bad things that I really, really don't want to do, but I end up doing them anyway. And then in this idea of not being able to do what you want to do, and doing what you don't want to do, he picks up right here in verse 21 where it says, I find then a law that is evil, that evil is present within me. The one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warning against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And in the ESV, verse 24 says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will save me from this life that is dominated by death and by sin? Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will save me from this life that is completely dominated by sin and by death? And so here we have this really sad reality, this really sad juxtaposition in the fact that we know what God designed us to be was true and good and perfect and holy, but what we are now fails to live up to that original expectation. We can no longer, as we know what the good is, but we can't do it for some reason. We can never fully switch over from being bad to being good. We always have this inward desire. Paul, Paul described it as almost as if there's another law inside of him, this another law that is raging war with his better judgment or with his desire to do good, and that frequently is winning the battle and is causing him so much distress and pain. Now, this is a really sad situation to be in because we know, hey, God wanted us to be this, and for some reason or not or another, we are completely incapable of being this thing that God wanted us to be. And it's a, it's a sad situation to be in, and now I have to come up here and talk about it, and this is supposed to be a, a series about uh, good news, and I'm up here thinking, oh, man, this is, this is a lot of bad news. Where's the good news in this truth? Where's the good news in our human condition? Because it seems to be all negative. Well, the good news is... <laughs> that if we continue to study the Bible and if we read more, we see that there is a solution for the human condition and that solution is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is both able to save and use fallen humanity. Now, turn with me back to our scripture reading, back to where we first started. In 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. What can God do with these people that are so miserable, so fully encapsulated in sin and death? What can God do for, these, for this fallen race? For what can God do for us? And in verse 12, sorry, in verse 9, it says, And he said to me, the being Paul, the same person who wrote Romans, the same person, I forgot this part, sorry, the same person who described this terrible situation that he's trapped in, this hopeless cycle of sin that he's trapped in, also wrote these same words in verses 9 and 10. And it says, and he says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. My brothers and sisters in Christ, my family in Christ, my community in Christ, Jesus is able to not only save fallen humanity, but he is also able to use fallen humanity. He's able to work in each and every one of us today, despite our weakness, despite our shortcomings, despite everything that we seem to be so bad at, Christ is still able to use us. Christ is still able to fill us with his strength, and he is still able to give us this sense of purpose, this sense of belonging, this sense of strength that isn't our own, but is given to us freely by God. Now, if we go back to Romans chapter 5, we had just read how because of Adam's and Eve's decision, all of us were negatively affected and, and humanity was changed by that and now all of us have to suffer the consequences. But we see that that's not actually where the allegory ends. Look with me in Romans chapter 5 and we're going to read verses 15 through 19. Romans chapter 5, 15 through 19. And it reads, But the free gift of God is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of the righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ." Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, by one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous." So we see that there is a solution. There is good news. There is good news in spite of this terrible situation. And the good news is Jesus Christ, who is both able to save and use us in our weakness. A very powerful, you know, and awesome truth indeed. Now, this is a message that also has been uh, very near and dear to my heart. Because, you know, the more I, I, I read and the more I learn and, and the more I'm studying to go and eventually tell other people about uh, God and Jesus Christ, the more you see how kind of terrible you are. The more I see how, how weak I am, how you know, frequent my shortcomings are, how often I completely misrepresent the character of God to other people and maybe even to myself. And so in the midst of kind of becoming more and more self-aware of all my shortcomings, of all my weaknesses, of all my you know, just terrible things you know, that are just a part of who I am or have been a part of me my whole life, 
it's easy to think, wow, like, is this really what God wanted me to do? Or am I really good enough to be doing this? Am I really, you know, the one who should be going up here and telling people that God loves them, that he wants to use them? I think about one of, probably one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, uh, which is Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. And I've known it since I was a little kid. Um, and it talks about, it's when God comes to Jeremiah and he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Saying, before you were born, I ordained you to be, a, I chose you, I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. And I, as I always heard that verse as a little kid, I would think, especially the part where it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I would think, oh, okay, God knew how many hairs were going to be on my head, you know, because we talk about that a lot, you know, when you grow up, or, or he knew what my name was going to be, or he, he knew maybe what eye color I would have, or he, maybe he knew how tall or not tall I would end up being. He, he knew all these things about me. He might have even known maybe my personality or something like that or who my parents were going to be. But then I really sat down and thought, and I said, but did God really know me? Did God really know me before he created me? Did he know how sinful I would be? Do you know how hard it would be for me to love him and how easy it would be for me to love other things that aren't from him? Did when God created me, when before God knew me, when God chose me for whatever he's chosen me to do in life, did he really know the full extent of my weakness and the full extent of my sin? Did God really know just how lost I was going to be before he chose me or before he chose all of us? Did God really know our weakness before he chose to love us and before he chose to use us and before he chose us to bring his love to a dying world. And after struggling with that question for a long time and, and you know, reading you know, all these passages and all these, uh, these words uh, that God's given us, I came to the conclusion that he did know, that God knew everything. In fact, God knew even more than I knew my own weaknesses. God knows the things that I'll become aware of like 10 years from now. He already, he already knows them now. God knew the extent of my weakness, and God knows the extent of your weakness. God knows how weak you are. God knows how little strength you have. God knows how much you are broken and how much you are in need of a Savior. And despite all of that, God has not only chosen to save you, but he has chosen to empower you with his strength. God has chosen to give you his strength in place of your weakness, and not just give you his strength in place of your weakness, but to go to a whole world that is filled with weakness, that is filled with suffering, and that is filled with pain and misery and sorrow, and point them to the one who can take their weakness and give them his strength. May that be what each and every one of us serves to do every day, to find people and even find, look at ourselves and point people to the one who will take our weakness and give us his perfect strength.